Hi, this is Dave Resky, and welcome to today's edition of In the Now, where we focus on uncovering the myths and misunderstandings of marketing and leadership with some of the world's most interesting people. And I have a really interesting guest today, uh, Bill Flynn. Um, Bill has an amazing background in biography, and I'll just tell you a little bit about him before we get started. So uh, he's worked for and advised hundreds of companies, including startups, um, spanning in multiple industries. He's been a VP of sales eight times, twice a CMO, once a division president or a division head, GM, of a $100 million IT services company before he pivoted to becoming a growth coach in 2016. He's had five successful outcomes, two IPOs, seven acquisitions, including a turnaround during the financial crisis. Bill, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. David, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I want to make sure that um, I'm not a founder, I'm a, I'm a scale guy. So when you talk about those IPOs and acquisitions are not on me, I was part of it, but uh, so to, to make sure everyone's clear. Yeah, no worries. I'm sure you had a lot to do with uh, the success of those companies. Um, but, you know, just reading that biography makes me feel exhausted. So that must, <laughs> that must have been a huge amount of work. And you probably learned as much in that as kind of the average career guy does in four lifetimes. So it's uh, it's super exciting for you to kind of share some of that expertise with us today. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. You know, as I say, as I, I, I work with folks to hopefully help them make their own mistakes and not repeat mine. Yeah, exactly. And you're also an author, right, of the book uh, Further Faster, The Vital Few Steps to Take the Guesswork Out of Growth. Yeah, accidental author. Um, but yeah. yeah, I'm really cool to have a book. I, and I also contributed to another book called Freedom of Constraints, where I was uh, one of 29 uh, folks that are in the 100 Coaches organization that Marshall Goldsmith leads. And one of the guys wanted to write a book. And so he asked for help. And I uh, presented something. He thought it was good enough. So I'm in two books. So that's kind of cool. That's awesome. Well, well, we'll get to all that in our conversation. But um, first, I just want to... Um, start with a provocative question. I just want to ask you to help us smash a myth about leadership. What's something that people believe about leadership, the common person? Oh yeah, that's what they do. It's just not really true. Yeah. So I have a few, but um, the biggest one, and I guess the most provocative is leadership isn't a thing. Uh, and what I mean by that is, so you can teach someone how to be a doctor or a professor or whatever, um, but there's no formula for being a great leader uh, or a leader itself. Uh, if you look at great leaders out there are people that say are great leaders, some have opinions that they're the great leaders, others say they're not great leaders. So there's, there, there's no like one thing that, that says this person's a great leader. Um, you know, you look at Steve Jobs, you know, he, people say he was a great leader and maybe he was, but he had a bunch of flaws, right? And some people didn't think he was that great a leader. Um, you know, you look at um, folks like uh, Warren Buffett, they say he's a great leader, but, you know, what makes him a great leader? He's, he's rather, he doesn't have a lot of charisma. And they say, you know, you have to have, you have to have, you know, creative, you have to have a vision, you have to, you know, uh, be charismatic, whatever. There are no, there are no attributes that I've seen that if you say, if you do these things or create these things within yourself, you're a great leader. Um, what I have found is that there is a continuity across leaders that is those people who are considered leaders are people who can figure out how to create followers, hmm. right? Is you can't be a leader without a follower. You can't say I'm in charge or I'm leading. Uh, it's, it's an act of volunteerism, right? People say, I choose to follow you 
And other people make you a leader. You can't make yourself a leader. Now, when I look at that, there are two things that I, that I noticed. Um, and my, my favorite leader of all time uh, is a guy named Alan Mulally. Are you familiar with Alan Mulally? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really well. Most people don't know who Alan Mulally is, I, I've found. And uh, so Alan Mulally was the head of Boeing commercial aircraft mm-hmm. in the middle of 9-11. And he was the head of Ford in the middle of the 2008 crisis. Uh, he uh, led those th- folks through basically an existential crisis for that industry itself. And they were better leaving it than they were when they went in. Mm. Uh, no leader that I've ever heard of has done that twice. And with huge companies, right? I mean, these, these weren't, you know, little companies you jump in you know, and you and through force of will or whatever. So um, and what I like about Alan, so he did that. Alan is a really nice human being. He is a wonderful man. I've gotten to know him um, uh, because I wrote something about a book that was uh, called American Icon about how Ford did what they did. And I wrote how a lot of what he did at Ford is similar to what I teach my clients. It was amazing how there was such continuity. And he read it. I can't remember if I told you the story or not. He read it about two years ago. And that's how I got into the Marshall Goldsmith organization. He's very good friends with Marshall Goldsmith. And he asked, he said, you know, what can I do to help you? We had this great conversation, like 45 minutes. And I was, I was amazed. I was sort of shocked. And I've been talking about Alan Mulally for a decade. And now I'm chatting on the phone because he reached out to me. It was just the coolest thing. So I think you can, you can do certain things. And I love, I love what he said is, is that you can, I said, you know, if you had to sort of boil it down to a sentence of, you know, how you could be as good a leader as possible, he said, Bill, you got to love them up and you hold them to the standard. Mm. You've got to sort of have this balance of really caring for people, making sure they're safe, giving them the tools and things that they need to be successful, but also make sure that you say, hey, here's what we're doing. Here's how we're, here's the standard. And you have to meet it. If you don't want to meet it, that's okay. But you should go do something else somewhere else. Yeah. Um, so I think that's sort of the myth that, I, that I've come to believe is true. I think... You, you need two things just to sort of wrap this up is you need vision because people want to know where are we going? Where are you leading me to? And you need courage. I think that's the one attribute I saw across all leaders is they have courage because people are going to tell you you're wrong. They're going to challenge you. Uh, you have to have the courage to give the autonomy to people to let them do things and make mistakes and all that. So I think, I think those are the two things that, that are really important for leaders. So that's the myth that I, uh, I talk about a lot. That's really cool. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So I'm just going to kind of take it a piece at a time and kind of ask a little deeper about that. So, you know, you you said one thing that distinguishes or makes you obviously a leader is that you have followers. What's the difference between a follower and an employee? So you hire people, they work for you. Are they followers? When do they, when do you become a leader and you're just, or just a manager? Yeah, great question. I think this gets to this, these engagement statistics that have been bandied about in the last few years. You know, Gallup has some and a couple other places that do it as well. I think the, um, there's um, another group that does this as well. And uh, most people aren't engaged. So an employee is someone who works there, has a paycheck, sort of does what they're told, but doesn't necessarily believe what you believe. Mm-hmm. To have an employee that's also a follower they have to buy into, I want to help this person and these people get to wherever it is that they've described. And, you know, this vision thing, I think is important as well Is you have to describe as a leader, 
where we're going in such vivid terms that it sounds like we've already done it, but you have to describe it as if it's already done. So people will recognize it when you get there, right? Um, and I think when you, when you do that and you have people who truly believe that, then you now have an employee who is also a follower, right? They will do things that you never thought they would do or ask them to do in service of helping you get to where you want to be. They want to contribute to that as opposed to show up, you know, get a paycheck, go home and have a life. You know, they, 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 they work, uh, they work to live. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's it. Uh, it's a, it's a paycheck and they, they do other things that are happy. But if you, you know, you and I are generally the same age and we've, we've worked, we've, we've worked a lot in our lives, right? You spend a lot of time either at work or thinking about work. I can't imagine it not being a, an enjoyable thing. It's a, a drudgery. Um, so mm -hmm. if you can, I think that's such a privilege that leaders can, can, can create. And, and I know you've, you've done it with, with your team is that, you know, you want to make it so that they enjoy coming to work. They, they feel like they're, they're part of something bigger than themselves. We all want that. So if you can create that environment, what a privilege to be able to do that for people. I think it's really cool. Yeah, that's super powerful. So, you know, the, the leadership characteristics you described, vision and courage, and you work as a CEO coach with lots of CEOs and you've had lots of experience, which is the hardest for the CEO to master? you know, in your experience. Without, it, without a doubt, it's courage. It's the courage. I think, I think most, most visionaries, most people who start businesses have a vision. They say, you know, there, there's something that they think they can do better than someone else or that they enjoy doing and they want to, to make it part of their lives or there's something new that they want to contribute to the world, right? So they have this vision of it. Um, they have this idea of how the world would be a better place if I created this thing. Um, and often you know, ho hopefully often enough that happens, but, um, uh, courage is hard. Courage is really hard. Right. And, and I asked that of Alan, I, I saw Alan speak at a Vistage event years ago. I didn't know him yet. Uh, and I, I told him, I said, look, I've seen you. I said, you know, I heard your story. You were up there for an hour and a half and you gave your, you know, your one slide presentation over an hour and a half, which was really cool. I saw, um, another guy, I can't remember his name now who, who, was a continental. I read books about Lou Gerstner turning around IBM. You talk about Steve Jobs 2.0. And I said, the stories are all the same. You all do the same things to, to make these a successful organization. And I said, well, why does, why don't more people do that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he stopped for a minute and he sort of thought about it. Like, I don't think he'd been asked this question before. And he said, his first answer was, cause it's hard. Mm. It's hard to, one, to create the standards, right? That's a lot of work to say, you know, here's how we run a meeting. Here's how we talk to each other. Here's how um, we work. We, we create um, a great experience for our users. You know, all these things, these standards that you have to basically have to document and teach other people. And then I think the hardest thing is you have to realize that they run the company, you don't. Mm. But I think great leaders understand that their job isn't to run the day-to-day. -day. certainly not full-time. Their job is to predict the future of the business. And the only way to do that is to have time to, to do that. You have to think. It's about thinking more than doing. And, you know, I say all the time is you have to fire yourself from the day to day as much as you possibly can, because our brain doesn't work that way. Our brain can't focus on two things at the same time. So if you're doing all day, right, and you're, you're in meetings and you're, and you're telling, you know, telling people what to do and whatever it is that you're doing, you, you, your brain doesn't have the opportunity to think. Right. And I ask people this all the time. And I'll ask you is, 
when you get your best ideas, your epiphanies, your insights, what are you doing, David? Can you like recall what you, what you were doing? I'm usually walking or I'm in the shower. Exactly. Shower is a big one. Walking, riding my bike, doing something that doesn't really take any thought. You, you know, it's sort of automatic mm-hmm. and it allows your brain the freedom to connect things, right? That's what an insight is. It's actually two sets of, you know, clumps of neurons connecting in your brain. It actually physically changes your brain. When you get that moment, something has happened in your head. And the way to do that is to relax, take it easy. You know, some people say it's in the, it's, it's in the morning hours, like I'm just waking up or those late hours when I'm just going to sleep. And uh, so if that's true, then if you're doing all day, you're not thinking at all. You're just doing, right? You're a human doing, not a human being, as they say. So, um, so, so I think courage is definitely the hardest thing to do. The hardest thing to, of those two. So, so help me connect the dots between the courage and the, you know, thinking about the business. Do you have to have the courage to let go of your business? Do you have to have the courage to trust other people to run it? Do you have to have the courage to stop doing? Do you have the courage to experience worse results while people aren't doing it as well as you are? What is that cur- the essence of the courage you're asking leaders to do? Yeah, you, you kind of are answering the question for me, David. Um, <laughs> that's what I've found is that it's mostly the courage to, to let go right? Um, to, to make decisions as a leader that give other people the power to make decisions, right? You need to push the authority to make the decision down to where the information is. And as you grow as a business, that information is, gets further and further away from you as a leader. So you've got to create those tools um, and those standards and those things for those people to be able to make decisions without having to ask you because what used to happen before was something would happen and then up the chain it would go you know and then they'd have a decision you know decision or whatever and then back down to the thing things move too fast and that's not really efficient and you know you don't want people making there are a few decisions that you really have to make yourself um there's a great uh video of um uh, i can't remember his name right now i'll get it in a minute uh he he uh, david marquette he was a, a submarine commander years ago, and he wrote a book called Turn the Ship Around. And he said he became, a, he, was, he was assigned the top submarine in the Navy because he was a great captain. But then something happened and he had to get reassigned weeks before to another one, which was the worst performing submarine in the entire Navy. Hmm. And when you're a sub Marine commander, you're basically that genius with a thousand helpers, right? You have to know everything about the ship. You give orders, you, you know, you do this, you do this, you know, half a head, third, down this, you know, down scope, all that kind of stuff. And he found he couldn't do that because he didn't know the ship. He, he studied a year for his, the ship he was supposed to get, the, the, uh, the submarine he was supposed to get. And he, he only had two or three weeks, so he didn't know anything. So he had to give up the reins. He, he, he said, he, he says, you guys know what you're doing. And he, he found this out. He tells a story. He said, um, you know, he's like, he gets in and he says, I had two thirds. And like, he said, nothing happens. Nobody does anything. He's like, I had two thirds. And, and then he looks over to the guy who's supposed to be doing that. He says, you know, basically, what are you doing? He said, we don't have two thirds on this ship. <laughs> oh, so, you know, wow. uh, he's like, oh, oh sorry. <laughs> you know? um, so he gave up, he basically gave up the power to do that. Um, and over a year or two, it became the, best performing submarine in the entire Navy. And it got the highest scores ever given to a, a group of folks who, who ran a submarine. And he said it was because I stopped telling people what to do. 
right? Wow. I, I gave them the authority to make decisions. Now, of course, he had to teach them stuff to do that. Um, he basically had to teach them how to think like he does. Um, but uh, but that, that's definitely a, a story. So uh, and, and I talk about courage and I'll give you, I was pulling up a list while you were, while I was sort of, while you were asking. So here's what I, I wrote. I wrote this in an article a while ago. I said, you have to have the courage um, combined with a clear and clear, uh, compelling and clear vision. You have the courage to defend and promote that unique and compelling vision. You have the you have to be, courage to be vulnerable, to create an autonomous environment, to trust that autonomy. Uh, the courage to correct mistakes as learning to invest in future, in future growth as opposed to telling people what to do. You have to be patient. You have to stop doing what gives you comfort and confidence. Um, you have to trust your team to help you see and craft the future. Mm. There's a lot of things you have to be courageous about. Um, so, so that's, I think, and, and you named, uh, it's funny, you named about three or four of those. I don't know if you ever saw the list I made. I made this list about three or four years ago. That's cool. So, you know, that, uh, to me, that, that's a great, to me, that tells me that you are one of those enlightened leaders, right? You're thinking about these things to create a great environment for your, for your team. So you know, I love compliments. You can do it all day long. Thank you. <laughs> it's good. It's good. No <laughs> I can never be overcomplicated, complimented. Thank exactly, you. Um, exactly. So I want to dive a little bit into one of the other aspects, because as a leader, I think uh, I really love hearing people say, do less, let go, delegate. And, and it's hard. And I like to dive in, you know, just today I was working on a proposal presentation that I should have delegated to a salesperson. Mm-hmm. I'm doing it myself. <laughs> I'm better at it. You know, it's all that I need to hear, I need to hear that. But yeah, I want to, yeah. I want to concentrate on the other, another aspect of courage that you mentioned, which is the courage to hold people accountable, yes, which sir. is the courage, you know, you're going to teach and you're going to do stuff. So um, how do you find in your work with a CEO as a coach, how do you find that people are, are they good generally holding people accountable? Are they bad? What, where do the, what are the lessons that you feel like your CEOs need yeah. to grow in, in that accountability? Oh, that's a great question. I think we're, we find it difficult, uh, especially if we know the person or they've been there a long time or they're an A player. You can have a toxic A. I've had several situations um, and, you know, some with people you're familiar with, you know, they held on to people a good long time, much longer than they should have because they were afraid, right? One, they were afraid they didn't want to hurt their feelings. You know, they, they, I mean, and some of them are really good reasons. They have families, you know, et cetera. Um, and, you know, my job as a coach is to point out that, okay, while you're protecting that person, what ripples are going through the organization that they're creating that aren't good ripples, mm-hmm. right? How are they creating an environment of, of not safety, uh, you know, of, of not being psychologically safe? Um, uh, you know, are people avoiding them? So we're actually slowing the business down because they don't want to, they don't want to involve them in certain things. Uh, there are so many impacts that you have by keeping that person that clearly outweigh what, um, what keeping them would have. And it's interesting. I've had two situations that this is, that this has happened and two or three situations where they didn't change anything. And I actually fired those clients because if you don't have a good team around you, you're not going to be able to get the work done that, that we work on. Um, and both of those folks that, that finally made the decision, one, it took three years to get rid of a toxic A salesperson, the best salesperson far and away, but everyone was afraid of this guy. And the other one was a, a, a little bit less in time. And both said the same thing to me, which is, I wish I had done it sooner. It wasn't as bad as I thought. It was, there was impact, right? You, you drop a, a big salesperson, there's going to be a drop in sales um, or there's going to be an impact. But they were surprised at how everyone else sort of filled in. 
and they and they picked up things and and the 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 um atmosphere of the business changed dramatically uh it was amazing what that ha- what what how that works and so i i love this question i ask of my my leaders all the time uh and i want to i'll ask it of you but you don't have to answer it here um but it, it is would you enthusiastically rehire everyone on your team now that you know them and now that you've seen what they've done and I've asked this dozens, if not hundreds of times. And the answer is almost always no. Mm-hmm. I would not enthusiastically. I wouldn't fight if they came and you know, the, other, the other way to look at it is if they came to you and said, you know, I'm, I'm leaving, would you fight to keep them? Um, and you want to do that before they do that, right? But, but that's what you want to ask yourself. Would I fight to keep these people? And you're, then your job is, okay, how am I, how can I make them happier? And most of them don't want more money. Um, they'll take it, but it doesn't necessarily scratch that itch. They want more responsibility. They want challenging things to do. And these are the, these are the people who, who you, you fire yourself to, right? Mm-hmm. You give them things that you're, maybe you're good at it. Maybe you're not good at it, but it, it's not something that you should be doing. Maybe you should be checking it and making sure it's at the standard, but you shouldn't necessarily be doing it. Your job should be teaching someone to do it as well as you do. So then again, you can have more time to think about how the business is going and where, where yeah. it's going. That's uh, that's powerful. So that's a case where you've got, you know, that, that accountability, we get to let somebody go. They're violating maybe core values. They're violating your culture. Um, so that's one case of courage that the CEO has to have. But in another case, you know, how do you create kind of a culture of accountability? So that you, you're not thinking about firing people, but you just got to get people to step up and do their jobs. Well, how do, you, how do you create that culture of accountability where people sign up to the vision, they're doing their jobs, they're stepping yeah, up, yeah. they're kind of, you know, they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. And you, as a, as a CEO, you created that environment. How, how do you, how do you have the courage to do that? What's that courage? Yeah. So um, you're asking a very simple question. And what I found is it's not a simple answer. Uh, it, 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 I, I've, I've boiled it back down to, to how do you become a great team leader? Uh, we don't really teach people how to be great team leaders and it's a skill. Uh, to, to be able to attract the right kind of people, to be able to then form them into a team that contributes at, a, at a, an optimal level for the organization, uh, to help them grow as folks is something that we don't do well. And I think not doing that well does affect accountability. Um, often what we do is we put people in positions to do things that they're just not innately good at. So for instance, um, I'm a sales, I'm a, I've been a sales VP eight times, as you said, we ask salespeople to do two things which are actually in conflict with each other often. We ask, we ask them to be the mouthpieces of the organization to go out and, and, and have relationships and, and you know, whether you're introverted, extroverted, whatever, but you have, to be, you have to be able to have those skills and those abilities to have people to trust you and, uh, and have the, the curiosity as part of what, they, what, they, uh, is what drives them. And you have to have, they have to have compassion, right? Great salespeople have compassion. They want to, they can put themselves in the shoes of, of their potential buyer and then create action around trying to help them get there. Now we also do, we ask them to fill in the, the Salesforce data. Right. Yeah. They hate that. That, that. That's two different people. Someone who loves d- data entry and, and all that kind of stuff. And who's really good at that and loves that is usually not the same person who, who did the things I just described. So, you know, so that's, we do that a lot. That's, that's a very, um, stark example, but I'm, I'm a big fan of 
what you should do is is understand um, what what widgets are we taking into the into the group. So you're you're a marketing guy, right? So generally, the thing that, that the input of, of of things that into marketing um, is you're trying to create uh, potential people. You're trying to find potential people who will buy your product, and then you put them into the marketing box, and you do all your stuff, right? And you 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 create awareness, you generate interest, you qualify, you do all these things, right? And out comes what people call it an MQL, whatever you want to call it. It's some sort of qualified lead that you then hand over to a salesperson. So your main input and output are suspects or prospects or whatever you want to call them, and out comes a qualified lead. Now, what are the what are the functions within marketing that make that happen? And your job as a team leader is to figure out who are the people and what abilities and skills and knowledge am I looking for or and or can I teach them to create a bunch of not well-rounded people. Most people are idiosyncratic. Most people are spiky and create them into a well-rounded team that functions at an optimal level. Mm-hmm. And, and what happens is we people do things that they really don't love to do, they're not good at. And we're expecting them to do all things at a certain level, but we're not putting them in a position to do that. So someone who's really good at creating awareness um, is probably creative and thought, you know, and, and, and come up with lots of ideas, et cetera. Someone who's good at qualifying is probably good at process, right? Making sure you ask the right questions and go through this. Those, if you have one person do both of those things, my guess is they're going to be really good at one of the things and not so good at the other. Mm. And, but we hold them to the same standard for both things, which is unfair. It's like asking someone who's, who's a guard to then take a tip off in a basketball game. Mm. They're going to lose most often because the other guy's just taller. Right. Mm. And so that, that is something that I think that's what makes it difficult to be a really great team leader. Uh, So if you do that, well, then they'll hold themselves accountable. They'll, they'll, you'll put them in the position to do the things they love to do as often as possible. And they will, they'll do a much better job of holding themselves accountable and their teammates will as well. Cause there's been research that says if a peer Hold you accountable. You're much more likely to be to hold yourself accountable than if a boss holds you accountable. So accountability, it sounds like it's as much identifying core talents, putting people in the right positions where they're innately really good at what they're doing, and then giving them the freedom and maybe some structure and accountability around that. But there, it's not going to be that hard. The accountability is not hard when you get the right person in the right seat. Is and, that what and so? There's two things that I'll say. One is a, which isn't apparent is you have to give them autonomy, right? is if you want someone to be accountable to the things they're going to do, then you should give them the ability to, within the context of the contribution to the organization, give them the direction. Hey, in marketing, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to get better at this, whatever. Let them create their own set of priorities. Now, again, you have to make sure that they're they're in the right place. They're much more likely to do them if they come up with them as opposed to you telling them to do it. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing you said, which which sometimes is true and sometimes is not true. What I've found is they don't necessarily have to be good or great at it, but they have to love it. Mm. And if you love something, you will very likely get great at it because you will keep getting better. You'll keep trying. You'll keep experimenting, etc. Uh, you know, they, they, there've been a lot of studies on musicians and other folks who, this is a really, really high level musicians. And they found that the ones that were at the top of their field practiced more than someone else. Mm. And they and they said, you know, that they're more disciplined or whatever. And they found out that what it wasn't, they weren't necessarily more disciplined, but they loved it so much. They knew it sucked and they didn't want, but they they loved it. They wanted to get better. And those people that didn't love it as much didn't practice as much. Like so they didn't get as, as good. So 
if you can do that with your organization, it's, it's, it's not going to be a perfect science at all, right? Um, as long as they're, I, the, the research says, as long as they have something to look forward to every day or every week, something within their role, they're much more engaged and much more productive, which allows them to also to be more accountable, right? Because they want, they want, they can see it and they want to make the, it better. They want to make themselves better and their team better, which then allows them to be more accountable and hold, hold other people accountable. Yeah. It's amazing. Those are really good ideas. Let's take a little bit of a step back from the core concepts and talk about you. So you've had quite a journey through this whole business yeah. experience that you've had really through all these jobs and all these things. What is it about your journey that kind of led you to this passion for leadership and this, you know, this role as a CEO coach? How did you, how did you kind of get there? Yeah. So I've been, I've thought about that a lot and I think it gets back to what we just talked about. And if I really think about what I love to do, David, is I love puzzles. I am a big fan of puzzles. Uh, just before we started here, I was doing Spelling Bee on the New York Times, you know, and I love doing crossword puzzles and not jigsaw puzzles, but, you know, uh, it's generally thoughtful puzzles, things where you have to use your brain um, as, as the primary thing that you do. And if you think about it, a startup, I mean, you, you, you've started your own organization. It's just a big puzzle. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, it's a difficult puzzle because like it's, it's, it's like a Saturday New York Times crossword. Right. It's it's hard. If you get something wrong, it affects other things. If you get something right, it affects other things. It can actually give you epiphanies into other areas as well. Um, and to me, a startup is just a big puzzle. Uh, coaching is a different kind of puzzle. Uh, it's much more of a, the human element of the puzzle. I think, you know, I I studied neuroscience, which I think has helped me become a better coach because I understand how our brain works, at least to the degree that we understand it today. And I've learned that, you know, people are crazy. Mm. (laughs) We're all highly emotional, irrational, impulsive beings. That is our primary driver is emotion. It is not rationality. Um, You know, there've been studies done where uh, we put people in an fMRI machine and they, they ask them to make sort of make decisions and then they see what happens and they find out that before they're consciously aware of the decision that they made, their limbic, the limbic areas of their emotional centers of their brain light up first. So the conclusion is that we actually make a decision on emotion first, and then we make up the reasons after the fact, Mm. which means that we're we're, in some cases we're lying. Mm. We're fooling ourselves uh, because we want to justify that decision. Uh, So that's, I find that amazing. And, and, And so I'm much more compassionate than I've ever been because now that I realize that, I realize, you know, sometimes people are like that and you have to, you have to understand that and give them that. Now, you know, you want to try to get good at peeling that away and really making sure that the decision is, is, is a good one, not just based on emotion. Um, and so, so that I've found is, uh, one of the most important things that I've sort of learned over time was if I can put myself in a position to, to, to be uh, in a puzzled situation where I'm helping, then time flies, you know, uh, you know, an hour feels like five minutes, uh, where the opposite, you know, I'm sure you have this um, and other folks on your team, you want to, you want to lessen the time where five minutes feels like an hour, mm-hmm. right? Stuff that they loathe. And I'm a big fan. There's a, there's a thing that Marcus Buckingham talks about, and he's talked about it for years. It's called the love loathe exercise. I don't know if you've ever done it. Uh, and there's an extended one, which is love, loathe, lust, and long. But basically it says love and loathe is really easy. What do you love? What gives you strength? And it, it, you mentioned something earlier. 
it isn't necessarily something that you're good at. So my, my example is I'm pretty good at networking, but I skew introvert. Mm. I don't love networking. It drains me. So after like two hours of networking, I'm exhausted. I need to go home and just chill out. I have a really good friend. He loves, he loves networking. He, he's an extrovert. And so when the two hours is up, he's like, where are we going next? Right? He wants to keep going. So mm. now we both love it. Uh, we both um, are good at it, but he loves it and I don't. So your job as a leader is to try to put your, your team into those, those members of your team into that position as often as possible. And they'll tell you what they love. Um, and the exercise is great. You just take a piece of paper, you draw a T on it, you put love and loathe in the columns. And during the week, when you feel that surge of energy, you look forward to it. You know, um, time is flying when you're doing it. Write that down. What are you doing? Right? And when the, when the opposite happens, write that down. And your job is to then look at that as a team leader and figure out how to get them to do the love as much as possible and how to stop doing the loathe, right? Mm. How can you, can you automate something that they loathe? Can you delegate it to someone else? Can you eliminate it? Maybe there's some stuff you do that isn't necessary to do. My favorite is you can procrastinate. Stop yeah. doing it. And if it doesn't happen, if nothing, nobody notices, then you can eliminate it. If somebody notices, then you got to figure out what to do. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's great. Uh, so we're running out of time. I've got one more question for you. And then I just want to talk about uh, you a little bit more. Um, but, you know, I've been a, a CEO for almost 30 years in small companies, right? So I've been kind of an operator running and you were running, you know, sales and divisions and all that. How does it feel kind of, and how did you transition from being an operator or doer to being the one who's coaching other people doing those things and do you miss being an operator or do you really love being this in this coaching role? You don't even have to answer the last question. Not even important. Yeah, yeah, sure. How, how, do you, how did you transition to kind of coaching versus right. doing? So I think, um, I think I was lucky, David, because um, I've always had a Socratic approach to things. You know, I was much, you know, my, the people who worked like in my groups, they would laugh and they say, oh, here's Bill. He's going to ask us six questions, right? Before we, you know, they're going to say, hey, Bill, this is going on. What, what should we do? And I'll be, well, hang on, you know, tell me more about this or I'll ask a question. And that's really what coaching is. Coaching in its purest form is not giving an answer. It's helping. You have to believe that the person you're working with is already, is already great or can already be great, but they get in their way a little bit. And your job is to help them not is to help clear that away, right? Ask questions. And, um, and you may not hit it right every time, but you, you give them the ability to, to keep working out themselves. Um, so I think I was lucky that it wasn't that hard of a transition. And I found that as I went from being a sales guy to a sales VP, that I was more inclined to do the coaching, even though I didn't know what coaching was, I was a coach much more often than I wasn't a coach, right? I gave direction. I said, here's what we want to do. Here's what it looks like when we're really performing well as a group. You know, here's what it looks like. Tell me that I'm wrong. You know, let's debate that thing and discuss and decide. But once we agree on that, then I'm saying, great, how can I help you, you know, get better at the things you need to get better at so you can contribute to that overall thing? And I've been, I've been doing that for a decade or more before I became a coach. So I, I think if you talk to the best coaches, they are highly, highly curious people. Mm -hmm. They are extremely empathetic and or compassionate people, Right they realize it's not about them. If you can take yourself out of the equation and make it about the other person, you know, not give an answer, right? Try to find a question in there, you know, and some of the greatest questions is this guy called Monkey, Michael Bungay Stanier, who wrote a book called The Coaching Habit. And his favorite question is, 
and what else? Simple question, right? Uh, someone comes to you and say, you know, David, you help me do this, whatever. And, and, you'll, and you'll sort of ask some questions and, and you say, and what else? And eventually you'll find that often the thing that they ask you to fix isn't the thing that they need that needs fixing. Mm. So you got to get underneath, right? They're giving you a symptom and your job as a coach is to get to the root and then say, okay, it's not the thing way up here. It's this is really what's causing it, right? The reason that we're not selling a lot of stuff isn't because we have a we have a crappy sales team. It's because we've picked the wrong customer and we're not quite solving the problem the way that we should, which makes everything else harder along the line, right? Um, so I think I think those I was it was helpful for me to be able to. I, I think I just got lucky, to be honest with you. That's great. Well, it sounds like you're in the right place with your core skills and being your best self, which is awesome. Yeah, I love I love what I do. It, time flies when I'm with the clients. I become friends with my clients because it's just such a wonderful experience. So yeah, this is good. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. I've learned so much. I feel like I've got gotten coached a little bit myself through all this. <laughs> uh, learned a lot. So cool. thank, thank you. I'm really grateful for this time. So you know, if our uh, listeners wanted to help you in some way, how could uh, how could they reach out and help you? What, what are you looking? Yeah. For? So there's two things that that make my life better. Uh, one is I, I, I love having clients. I would love to have more clients. Um, I still have room for a couple more in my practice. Uh, so if you know a humble, hungry, or you are one, a humble, hungry learner who's comfortable challenging the status quo and is, is stuck in growth, they're like, you know, they're, and it doesn't have to be, I mean, you're stuck revenue-wise, but you're like, you're constantly guessing at growth. You know, my marketing tagline is I help you take the guesswork out of growth. Mm-hmm. If, if that's sort of your thing, I'd love to have more of those. And the other is, you know, download or buy my book. You can download my book for free on my website, but there's an audible version. There's an, there's an Amazon Kindle version as well. That would be great. And give me a review. Always, always nice to have a review. Perfect. Well, I hope you get a lot of this, a lot of that out of this conversation. So Bill, thank you. And how can people get in touch with you? What's the best way? Uh, best can? place is my website, which is catalystgrowthadvisors.com. Uh, again, the book is on there. My calendar link is on there. My contact info is on there. I write um, and uh, an article or a post twice a month. There are 150 or so of them on there over the last few years. I put those, and there's they're real short. Something that you, you almost always there's something you can do. They point to an exercise or whatever. As is my book. My book is a do-it-yourself book. It's not me pontificating. And it's you know, hey, here's what I learned. There are 25 exercises to go with the book. You can do it yourself. Um, it's not everything I know, but it's it's sort of the the meat, the essence of what I've learned over the years of how to run a really great, healthy, and thriving organization. Beautiful. Wow. Very powerful. Thank you, Bill, for being with us today, sharing your experience, your your wisdom, your knowledge, and um, I'm just grateful for cool. it. Thank you again. Thank you, David, for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you.